Father, we're grateful that you have already this morning fed us with your word and and the gift of Holy Communion. And thank you, Father, for reminding us week in and week out of, of who we are and who you are, and that you have given yourself to us freely and in grace. We are unworthy and we're and we are grateful. And let I pray that shape us in this uh, season of Lent. And Lord, as we continue in this study of Philippians, I pray that you'll give uh, the teacher wisdom and those who are here to listen and all of us understanding and and we'll, we'll know that if that happens, it's because you have been kind enough to be our teacher. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're pressing on today in Philippians. There are some seats somewhere here. And maybe people can... Well, there they go. The, ark, <laughs> the, the, door, the door to the ark is closed, I guess. No, exactly, exactly. Um, okay, let, let's. Uh, I, I always like to put the car in reverse a little bit um, because this series does have continuity to it. Um, we're moving forward in the book of Philippians, but I realize that some of you are, you know, are kind of in and out. Um, you know, last week we dealt with the first, uh, I think, nine, uh, ten verses of, actually eleven verses of um, of Philippians chapter one. Today, my goal is to get to, ch- to verse 26, so it's a little bit of a lofty goal, but I think we'll be able to pull it off. Um, but again, putting it back into reverse, you remember that Paul is thanking them, the Philippians, for remembering him and identifying themselves with Paul in his suffering, which was really a, a mark of public shame that the Philippian believers were willing to take on. They were willing to enter into that shame with Paul, and that drove Paul to thank God for them when he prayed and to be thankful that they remembered him uh, when he's in his prayers. And they are co-belligerents, I guess one might use that term, in the gospel with, with Paul. And then he prays that they would would grow in, in depth and knowledge of the love of God, um, so he, he's praying for them. And that's one of the, the, I think, major points we tried, well, it's I tried to emphasize last week. How, how did Paul demonstrate for them his affection? You know, and this, and Paul's, um, I mean, I don't know if you feel this way, but Paul's gushing a little bit here. I mean, you can, you can tell from the first chapter that Paul has a deep affection for these believers. Um, they mean something to him. Of course, all the churches do, but, you know, the churches, um, tend to give Paul a lot of problems. You know, it's like with, with children. You know, we, we love them, but, you know, you, you make my life hard. Um, and I think that's kind of how, how Paul is. You know, I really, you know, um, Corinthians, I really love you, uh, but you're, you're, a, you're a royal pain. You know, i got to deal with a lot of problems. But here the Philippians, you know, they, they, they bring out the depth, I think, of Paul's affection uh, for this, this small group of believers and uh, and how does he demonstrate his affection for them? He prays for them. He lifts them up in prayer. Um, we also saw that Paul demonstrates last week his confidence that God began something in this group of believers and he will see it through to completion which or, or to maturity, which is an, a, a rather large claim and, and demonstration from Paul about his faith and belief in the work of God in the life of the church. And we did a little rabbit trail last week talking about 
um, really how that the implications of that for the ways in which we deal with the people that we love, um, who we pray that God will do His gospel work in them and see it to completion. You know, we we plant seeds, we'll water it, but at the end of the day, harvest in the souls of of men and women is the work of God alone, and we stand back. And we watch him do it. I mean, I think that's one of the powerful things that we stand back and we go, "You're you're doing that." I even today, in church in the Gentilette home, right? I I just could just tell with one of my sons, you know, something something's going on, right? And then you could just sense it. And with other ones, I can tell it ain't going on. Um, you know, so you just got to sort of step back and go, "Lord, do your work in their hearts." That you know, we're going to bring them. Not one of my kids was excited about coming to church today. Not one of them. Um, and as a matter of fact, one of them, I literally had to get by two feet and drag him out of his bed as he fell on the floor. Now get dressed and let's go. Um, but, you know, we, we, we put him in the position to hear the word and trusting that the word of God will do its work. And Paul's demonstrating that kind of confidence in God's word. That's why we come to church and that's why we drag our families to church. We, we, we really know that what we need and what the people that we love need and what our world needs more than anything else is Jesus. Um, and we want to put them in a place where God, if I can use um, Anglican and Reformed language, we want to put them in the path of the means of grace. Um, you know, God can do extraordinary things. Uh, and and uh, um, I have a couple of co- colleagues here. We, we, we interviewed someone several years ago at Beeson for a position. And I'll never forget this interview. The person who was talking in it said, in all of his work, and, he, and this person was from a rather conservative theological world, he said in all of his work in Muslim countries, he had never met a Muslim convert to Christianity that wasn't converted where a dream where Jesus appeared to them hadn't occurred. I mean, we're, I mean, God can do extraordinary things, especially on the front lines of gospel evangelical work god can do extraordinary things um but i mean this is maybe my you know reformed you know side coming out with a little bit of vigor here but god works in ordinary ways that's what he does normally um he can do extraordinary things and we and we we you know and i and and um and people can get over i think well you be careful here um i think most people experience the extraordinary it, it can be like um it can be like pot I don't know. They want more. Uh, I don't know why that was the illustration I used, but um, you know, they were like one. One's not enough. I'd like to. I'd like to have another. Another couple of those. You know, high mountain hits, and that's fine. I'm, I'm sort of uh, not the pot part, the Jesus part. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, you know, that's fine. But God, how does God work ordinarily? What, what's the ordinary way by which He communicates His grace to us? In the preaching of the Word. In the celebration of the sacraments together, um, in prayer, in communion, in fellowship, that's the ordinary way by which God communicates Himself to us. And we, we yearn for our children and our families and ourselves to be in the place where God can do His extraordinary work through very ordinary means like spoken words, written words of the Bible, and bread and wine. I mean, it's, these are very, I mean, words, verbs, Nouns, bread, wine, this is, this is very basic elements of our material existence. And God takes those, sanctifies them, and communicates His very self to us. And we put ourselves in the path for God to do those kinds of things in our hearts.
So that's what we did last week. Now we're going to press on. Um, and I would like to read, I'm just going to read the verses we'll talk about, and then we'll talk about them. Sounds like a plan. Um, verses 12 through 14. I want you to know, uh, brothers, I was going, you don't feel left out, sisters, you too. Brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Uh, Paul's assuming knowledge in his interaction that he's having here with the Philippian readers. They know about him. They know that he, as he tells us back in verse 7, that he's been imprisoned for the gospel's sake. So he's now saying what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, that's quite a claim coming from Paul. Um, think about the energies. You've read Acts before. I mean, think about the energies that Paul gave to his missionary journeys. And the kind of, I, I guess maybe a way of describing it is the kind of entrepreneurial thought that Paul put into spreading the gospel into the Gentile world. Um, we had a, a preacher in our chapel this week at Beeson uh, who pastors a, a church, Redeemer Community Church in town. Many of you will know this congregation. Joel Brooks, who's a, who's a Beeson grad. And uh, he said one of the funny, he was, he was preaching in Ephesians. He said one of the funniest things. I, I, I thought it's really so true. Um, if you think about Ephesians 2, Paul says, and now to the Gentiles, and he's about to say something with a prayer, but Paul tr chases like a, I don't know, ten verses worth of reflection on the Gentiles. And what Brooks said was, when you ever you say Gentile to Paul, it's like a piece of steak in front of a dog. You know, it's like he's just, I, I, can't, I don't, I think that was the illustration you used. Something like that. No, Paul can't help it. Like that's just, that lights his fire. He, he wants to talk about it. Now, my wife and I last night had a little time to kill before this event we had to go to. So we went to the new, the, the newer Starbucks down here in downtown. And we got into a 10-minute conversation with the barista there, lovely guy named Kyle, who could he just wanted to talk about coffee. I mean, it's like, I mentioned it, hey, I like that Guatemala blend, boom, 10 minutes, we're into it, right? Um, and this is, this is Paul and the Gentiles, he, he, this is what lights his fire. These are the energies that Paul gives to his own calling before God as an apostle to go to the Gentiles. In other words, Paul is an apostle on the move. So some of you are like that, a little frenetic. You know, you need to be moving and doing. You're like a shark. You know, if you stop, you're going to you know, go to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> Paul was like that in many ways. A lot of energy given to the spread of the gospel. A lot of work given to that. And here, Paul's being stopped. I mean, you can imagine from a human perspective the frustration that that must have brought to someone like Paul. Think about this. I mean, Paul wrote the book of Romans saying that he wanted to visit uh, visit them again in Rome. He wanted to make a personal visit to them and he wanted to do a missionary trip to Spain. It's most likely Paul never got to do that in his earthly life. So he was e e even making plans but not being able to fulfill them and giving himself over to the work of the ministry but also giving himself over to the providence of God. Here he is now, he's in prison and what does he say? Even though I'm in prison, and even though I can't be with you, which I really would prefer being with you, and even though I can't continue to do my missionary work, the gospel is still being advanced even in this frowning moment of a providence. The gospel is being advanced. Well, how? Well, 
This was a little song that we used to sing in the churches I grew up in. Brighten the corner where you are. You ever heard that song? Brighten the corner. Anyway, I used to sing that one. Well, here it is. Paul's going to brighten the corner where he is right there in prison. It's become known. What's become known? The gospel. Through the whole imperial guard, those Roman soldiers hearing the gospel, Paul gets a captive audience. They can't go anywhere. They're with him too. So, well, I'll just go ahead and preach. And, and guess what? Prisoners, they don't get to go anywhere either. So all the guards, all those who are imprisoned, they know that I'm being imprisoned for Jesus. I'm telling them why I'm here. And that gives me a platform. And it gives me really the warrant to let them know that what I am sharing with them in the gospel, it's life and death. It's everything. It's worth going to prison for. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I mean, that's an incredible claim that Paul's making here. Um, these were fearful times, right? Uh, it's hard for us to conceptualize this in our own world. And I'm, I'm, and I'm grateful that it's hard for us to enter into this. But these were dangerous times to be a Christian. I mean, just think, within several years, you know, Nero will be on the throne. Um, in, in another, what, 40 years, you'll have the great persecutions that are unleashed on Christians. Think Polycarp dying by being burned alive in the Colosseum in the, in the early part of the first century or the second century AD. I mean, these, these kinds of sufferings are coming in the life of the church. And, and again, I'm not sure we think about this as much, but, you know, in preparing for this sermon last week on Lent and linking Lent to baptism, part of the reason why new converts to Christianity had to go through a long and rigorous process before their adult baptism was because one of the big questions was this. Are you ready to die for this thing? You're going to go into the waters of baptism on the Easter vigil. You're going to come out. We're going to give you a white robe. We're going to march you into the congregation. We're going to celebrate what God has done in your life. But part of that is, are you, is it, are you serious, enough, serious enough about this that you're willing, you're willing to die for it? I mean, you know, Athanasius is a line that gets tossed around a lot, and it's, and it's a hard one really to process. But Athanasius said in the fourth century, what? The, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Where, where martyr's blood spills, the church um, can kind of explode. Uh, it's a hard thing. Um, we uh, had at Beeson last semester, and I don't know if he came. Did Archbishop Kwashi speak here as well? Yes. So he spoke at, at Advent too? Oh, no, he didn't speak at the Advent. He spoke at the Advent. But he was Archbishop Kwashi. I mean, I, I, we're reading about it all the time what's going on in Nigeria, right? With Boko Haram. I mean, I had the opportunity to go with Archbishop Kwashi. He's the, he's the Archbishop in Nigeria over the Diocese of Joss. Um, and we went to lunch together at Johnny's. You'll appreciate that, Richard. Uh, we went to Johnny's together in Homewood. And, and um, you know, over fried green tomatoes, he's telling me about raising up a generation of young ministers to go back to Joss, the northwestern part of Nigeria, to take it back from the claims that Boko Haram has on that area. And I said, well, what's, in what is, what's entailed in that? Uh, their, their possible death. You know, no, that, that's, that's going on in our world now. And, and, and in our communion, in the Anglican communion, that's happening now where people are doing Paul stuff. Right? The, 
The advance of the gospel takes place in the paradox of truth. And why would we be surprised about that? Think 1 Corinthians. Why would we be surprised? The foolishness of God is demonstrated, or the wisdom of God is demonstrated in the foolishness of humanity. And what's the foolishness of humanity? A, a dead Messiah hanging on a cross. That's just foolish. Um, but that's God's wisdom in the world. And so I think Paul is demonstrating that cruciform existence in his apostolic life. Well, that's the first three verses. Let's press on. Uh, verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. This is going to be a hard pill for some of us to swallow. Me too. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Well, who? Well, the people that have been emboldened even by Paul's example. Some indeed preach Christ from envy, from rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, they do it all from love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my, my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Wow. I, I've had to sort of mull over this. What is it that Paul's saying here? Well, we don't really know the background on this. We can make guesses. Uh, and what were the historical causes that would lead Paul to make this kind of claim? Well, we don't really know, but we might try to take a stab at it with our imagination. One, one commentator said, it's, some, it's likely that some preachers who are preachers of the gospel saw Paul's foolishness or Paul's uh, um, lack of foresight, right? that he landed himself in prison, maybe deterring his gospel work. Or I mean, it, For some reason, they thought that Paul being in prison was a, a badge of shame on Paul. Right, and they were, I guess, willing to say it. I guess uh, maybe I don't know, but that's that's a thought. Uh, one thing I think for sure that we do sense here is that Paul is aware of Christian tribalism. He's aware of it. Uh, and by the way, this isn't the only place that he says it in his letters. You think about First Corinthians. I mean, some of you are walking around saying that you're of Apollos. Some of you are walking around saying you're of Peter. Some of you are of Paul. Some of you are even saying, forget all those guys, I'm of Jesus. Um, you know, that, that kind of tribalism where we associate ourselves with a particular leader within the community, and then that becomes, um, you know, the wagons get turned around and now we have tribal thinking, the protection of our own identity over against the advance of the gospel. Paul is aware of it. And I think we can say, Paul doesn't like it. I read a, um, a little book that came out years ago um, from, I think it was called The Princeton Proposal for Unity or something like that, but it was written by uh, American theologian Robert Jensen and another theologian named Carl Broughton. And there was a little line in there that I thought about a lot. And it went something like this. When, whenever church groups, theological groups, you know, whatever it is where it's what Karl Barth would call hyphenated Christianity, right? You know, we, um, I'm this kind of 
blank hyphen Christian. Right. I'm this blank hyphen Christian. And I think Karl Barth was right. I mean, when we start talking that way, we tend to emphasize what comes before the hyphen, right? Before the Christianity part. Um, and uh, that this is this is I think a live a live dynamic um, where we have here people who are identifying themselves according to particular uh, particular groups within the larger Christian faith. Now I want to be nuanced here, so if you're getting nervous, hold on. Um, but you know this this is where that principle proposal of unity said when we focus on what makes us distinct over against the other, then we have fallen into Religious idolatry. That was the line. Well, I've thought about that a lot. When we, when what we are known for is our, what we stand for over against the other groups, then we have reduced ourselves to Christian or religious idolatry. Now we have to talk about this, right? Because theological distinctives matter, right? These things matter. There's a reason why Baptists exist. There, there's a reason why we have Methodists. And there's a reason why we have an Anglican tradition. Because for the rest of us who are all confused, we can find an umbrella under one place. That's a little joke. Old joke. Listen. <laughs> um, I mean, there, there are reasons why particular theological traditions exist, and those are not to be downplayed. They're, they're important. And I'm going to tell you what, why I think these differences of denominational identity exist. You know, want to know why I think they exist? Because people read their Bibles and take it seriously. And they read their Bibles and take it seriously enough to where they say, you know what, I don't find that in the Bible. Or I do find that in the Bible. Or I read these texts in this way along with that tradition and my conscience won't let me change my view on X, Y, or Z. So these can be matters of conscience and they, and they are important. In other words, I don't, I don't think... Um, can I just use one? I don't know. Some, but can I just use the, maybe the elephant in the room? Baptism, right? That, that's a hot one, right? That is, to my mind, your view on baptism and your and your doctrine of baptism is not adiaphora. Do you know that term? Adiaphora is a technical term that means really it doesn't. It's it's, it's uh, there's, there's nothing much attached to it. Here, here's something that's adiaphora. People want to raise their hands in church. You keep their hands down. It's not a lot of theology. You know, it can go either way on that. Um, your the, whatever your particular music is that you like, or whatever your identity. There, there are lots of areas that are that are not at the core of our identity, and we can just agree to disagree. But there, I don't think your view on baptism falls into that. This is an important theological matter. Um, it's used technical theological term. Our view of ba- baptism and the Lord's Supper are dominical sacraments. They're given to us directly by the Lord Jesus Himself. So our view on these things, they matter, right? They matter. And yet, on these things that are so central and they matter, Christians can really disagree. As a matter of fact, in the 17th century, they could disagree so much that people were killing one another over it. Not Catholic, Protestant, that was happening too, but we're talking Protestant and Protestant. Now, my father-in-law is an Anna, is a Baptist, and he's a borderline trail of blood Baptist. You know, the, our, our joke is, because he'll teach church history in various sort of mission organizations in the, in the Caribbean islands, and I'll say, Dad Zimmer, what are you, what are you teaching, uh, uh, you know, this term down there? And, and his answer would be, I'm teaching church history. And I said, and then, but what he, but then he joked, he said, really, it's Baptist history, but I just call it church history, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And, and we have a great sort of back and forth. But, you know, that, that, these, we're talking about, and my father-in-law doesn't mind remind, reminding me, remember, your kind drowned my kind, you know. <laughs> you want to get baptized? We're going to really baptize you. Here's a river. Here's some rocks. We're going to tie around your legs. You're dead, right? Throw you in. That's it. So these things really matter. Right? So I don't, I don't want to downplay that. Um, theological integrity matters. Doctrine matters. Um, our view on the Trinity and Jesus and the Bible, these things really matter. But I do think Paul is saying here something about what it means to become tribal in our identity. And here is Paul saying something that, again, it's hard for me to get my mind around it, but Paul is saying those other believers out there who are leaders in the faith that drive me nuts, that actually I think they're operating from... I mean, listen to this. I believe that their motivation... I would never say this, but I believe their motivations are selfishly ambitious. In other words, they are talking about Jesus, and I think they're even doing it in a right and, and way, theologically speaking, but they're doing so to kind of build their own name, put their own name in the, in the lights of the marquee. That's what's driving them. They're selfish in their ambition. They're not doing this out of love for the faithful. They're doing this out of a building of their own rhetorical um, reputation. I think that's why they're doing it. But you know what? At the end of the day, as long as Jesus is still being proclaimed and He's being proclaimed faithfully, I'll swallow it. I'll, I'll actually not just swallow it. Paul puts it positively. I'm going to rejoice in it. All right. Um, Praying and asking God to open our hearts to be grateful for the various Christian expressions that are out there and also keeping the gospel of Jesus Christ in some sense detached and protected from the personalities that deliver it. And that can be hard because some of you are around people who are leaders in the Christian world or well-known Christian people and... Um, you know, God's given them the spiritual gift of jackassness. You know, I don't know if that's the right way to put that. Um, you know, I, I've, I've told people, I remember, you know, I came from seminary. Um, I came from you know, kind of a small world seminary, read lots of books in seminary, and was somewhat fascinated by the big names, scholarly names, right? One of the worst things that can happen to you is to meet those people. Um, I can remember two, and I won't say them, but two big scholar names. And here I am at a conference in St. Andrews, Scotland, and, uh, and I know they're coming, and I, and I see these two in, in personal interaction around the subject matter, and how they kind of tear the person down who is speaking, and I thought, that's not cool. And I kind of wish I wouldn't have met them, because I really like their books, right? <laughs> their books are really good. Um, there's a sense in which... You know, we have to have some flexibility about personality, people's hard edges, um, the, 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 the fact that we thank God that they're doing their gospel work, that they're teaching the gospel, that God's given them the platform that He's given them, even if I don't really want to hang out with that person. You know, I, I, I don't want to go get coffee. It's okay. Um, but I'm going to stop, sit back and thank God that the gospel is going forth, even when it goes forth in the ways that I'm, I don't find all that palatable, but at least the gospel is going forth. It's a rather big claim here. I think another text that might shed some light on this is James chapter 3. We're not going to turn there, but James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. There James says, I ask for the wisdom that comes from above, not from below. What does wisdom that look, comes from below look like? It's selfishly ambitious. Um, it's filled with bitter jealousy. 
Um, it's the disciples who hear Jesus talking with the beloved disciple, and then they say, well, what about, what do I get? What about me on this? Um, and I, can I just, I'll lay my cards on the table. This is very easy to talk about in a public forum. It's another ball game when you're in the life of Bible study, or you're in the life of teaching, or you're in church life. It's very difficult, and it's a real challenge for people to think about, am I in this for the advancement of the name of Jesus, or am I in this because, you know what, there's a lot of affirmation that comes from this kind of work. A lot of affirmation. That's a real challenge. You remember the, the famous line from John Bunyan, right? John Bunyan was coming down from the pulpit after having preached a sermon. And someone told him, I want you to know, sir, that is the greatest sermon that I've ever heard. And Bunyan said, please don't tell me that. The devil already said that to me on the way out of the pulpit. All right. um, <laughs> um, there's, there are challenges here, I think, for all of us. But I think the check that Paul is modeling here, and it's wonderfully gracious and humble, for the greatest apostle the world's ever known, to say, this isn't about me. This isn't about the advance of my reputation and renown. This isn't about people walking away from my sermons and saying, oh my lands, those are the best sermons I've ever heard. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he works hard not to do that. Well, I'm going to work hard not to craft this thing in such a way that you're blown away by my rhetoric. Because I don't want you to be blown away by my rhetoric. I want you to be blown away by the power of the gospel that's demonstrated to you in the Holy Spirit. And here Paul is saying, and that goes for those other guys too, and other gals too, who really, they rub me the wrong way. And if we get together at the Theological Association, we're not going out afterward for whatever. Um, I just don't really want to hang out with them. But I'm grateful that the gospel goes forth nonetheless. I didn't plan on parking on that as long, but there we did. Um, Well... Can we do any more? I don't know. It's con- well, let me just read these verses here. Here's Paul's death and life vision. For I know, verse 19, that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will all turn out for my deliverance. We'll stop here. I'm going to talk about this verse and then we'll see if you have any questions. For my deliverance. Now, I think that's the right translation. What, what translations do we have in here? I've got the ESV. I call that the Beeson Standard Version. Um, uh, you have the you have the NASB, don't you? The, near, the nearly inspired version. Oh, you have the NIV. Mm-hmm. So the NIV said salvation. Well, that's fascinating. Actually, well, that, that's that's the footnote as alternative. Oh, as the alternative, right? And that and that's the that that's the deal. The, the the word that Paul uses here is the word in Greek that we would associate with salvation, soteria. So what's Paul claiming here? I think deliverance is fine, but that's, that seems to me to have ratcheted down the larger claim that Paul is making. Paul is claiming that I know that whatever happens now, that my future salvation is secure. I know that's, that's, that's where this goes. Um, Paul, I believe, understands salvation as a dynamic process. right? A secured in the past um, rooted in the present and revealed in the future. And it's always held in the hands of Jesus who gives us salvation freely of His own good graces. Um, So here's Paul saying, I know, if I can put it in our... I know that I have been saved. And I think if we ask Paul, well, when did that happen? I think Paul would say, well, I, I, I know that happened 
you know, several years back on a, on a cross outside of the gates of Jerusalem. Um, and when Jesus was raised from the dead, he tells us he was raised from the dead for my justification. I mean, the fact that Jesus died and raised and is now seated, seated by the Father in the eternal communion of love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that's how I know that I'm saved because I'm in Him. And I'm in Him then, and I'm in Him now, and, and I know that in the future He will make that salvation um, true and He will bring it to its completion and its, um, and its finality. I mean, I think this is what Paul's saying, if I can use our... Our confessional language from our context. Paul's saying, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. And I believe that whatever happens to me in my imprisonment, if I don't even get out of here, or if I die in this setting, I know and I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. I know that God will make good on His promises to me in Jesus. And my salvation that I live in now is secure and waiting on me then. There, um, you know, we tend to think in temporal terms, right, of past, present, and future. God does too, in the sense that He He gives Himself to time. But our God's not bound by time. Our salvation and that dynamic character of it—that's um, always made secure and hopeful for you, because Jesus holds your salvation in His hand, because He holds you in Himself. That gives Paul the utmost confidence. And we'll talk about this next time. But the utmost confidence to say in the next few verses, whether I live, I'm Christ's. Whether I die, I'm Christ's. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Whether I'm living, I'm going to live for Christ because I'm in Him. And whether I'm dying, I'm going to be with Christ. But all of it, this is Paul's grand vision of his existence. My living and my dying. I don't, I don't know if you realize this or not, but that's everything. <laughs> there's, there's no in-between. So living and dying, that's, well, that's, that's everything. All of that is, is about Christ and what He has done for me um, in Himself. Okay? Uh, I don't know if we have time for questions. Anybody want to ask one? Anything that really just got you upset? Yes? I'm sorry. Yeah, John? We don't know. Um, I mean, I, I, there's there's some bad there's some bad folks. Um, or maybe another way of putting this is, I hope this doesn't come across offensive, but um, just because you get ordained doesn't mean that you become sanctimonious. Um, pe- people can do some dastardly things to one another in the ministry. And I think all you have to do is be around it for a little bit to see it. I'm sure you have too, John. Now, people can do some ugly things to one another in the ministry for the sake of a kind of tribal identity. And if these are people that are building a certain kind of cadre or following so that their, the Christianity that they are giving is shaped by their particular teaching of it and their claim on the authority in that community, well, Paul's, be, Paul's authority having been taken away by being imprisoned, I would imagine was a green light opportunity for them to move in and take over, and I'm, I'm and that that kind of movement was happening, and you and you read it, you see it in in Corinthians as well, yeah, yeah. 
don't we see, and I've forgotten which gospel it's in, um, verses 16 through 19, the apostles approached Jesus and said, there's somebody out there that's, that's casting that's out right. demons in that's your right. name, and we forbid him. Yeah. But Jesus said, but he's yeah. doing the right thing, forbid him not. Don't yeah. we, isn't that the same yeah. instance here? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and this is not a good illustration. Of, yes, it is. I mean, this is not a good illustration of this. But, you know, we, we go to sand sometime on Lakeshore. And and our kids will sometimes get giggly about the street preacher there. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. We don't allow it. We're like, don't don't giggle at that. We, I mean, we don't know what's motivated. We don't know anything. But we know that guy comes out in the morning. And he leaves in the afternoon. And all the verses I see out there are Bible verses about people needing Jesus. Well, let the gospel go forth. We're not going to laugh at that. Um, you know, so that, that's uh, that's a bad example because I don't. But but that kind of thing, I think, we're like, well, I don't, you know, I'm, I wouldn't do that on a Saturday. Um, but I'm glad he is. I think. Yeah. All right, blessings. blessings. Thank you.